Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hi there, welcome to our Tuesday lunchtime talk series here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name's Lisa Slade, I'm the Assistant Director here at the Art Gallery and today I am delighted to be introducing the work and world of Tom Moore. We're going to hear from Tom in a moment, but before we do, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Ghana country. Agsa Mianagana Yatanga Yuandi. Now, Tom Moore is no stranger to the Art Gallery of South Australia or to South Australian audiences. He's been making art in this fair city for many a year. In fact, in 2016, Tom was included in the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art Magic Object. And Tom transformed not only one of our larger galleries here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, but also the Museum of Economic Botany in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. He transformed our space and that space into a menagerie, a celebration of glass blowing at its most fantastical. This project called Tom Moore Selects takes a slightly different approach. Last year, with the assistance of the Art Gallery's contemporary collectors, four works by Tom were acquired into the gallery's collection. Those four works I think represent the pinnacle of his practice to date. In fact, they were part of his PhD exhibition at the University of South Australia. And they're works that draw upon influences far and wide. In order to underscore or celebrate the conversations that those works are having with the world of art and the world of craft, we invited Tom in to look behind the curtain, if you like, to go into our gallery stores, to go into the collection, and to select objects. There are 77 objects on display as part of Tom Moore Selects, and probably about 10 of them have been made by Moore himself. The remainder are works that traverse aspects of the collection. I won't go on any further. I'm going to now hand over to Tom Moore, and I'd love Tom to talk us through the process of actually coming in and looking at the collection. I'd love to get into his mind to see what he was looking for when he came into the gallery stores. Welcome, Tom Moore. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here and to report on this project, which has been a very great pleasure from the very start. I was... Um, of course, thrilled that my work was going to be acquired by the Art Gallery of South Australia and that it is now on display. And the offer of being allowed to choose objects from the collection was also extremely interesting. I really wanted to know what there is in the collection that hasn't really been seen because of course, m most major institutions have way more in their collection than they can ever possibly show at one time. And some of these objects that are in the collection have actually never been photographed. And so nobody really knew what they were. And some of the descriptions were quite um, brief, but I had an inkling about a couple of them a little collection of objects which are probably made in the uh, probably in the 1800s when glass factories were um, 
pretty much everywhere. Every major town had quite a lot of glass blowers making bottles and small vessels for um, medicines and so forth. And so there were lots and lots of glass blowers, quite unlike today, where it's a very rarefied and unusual thing to do. And one of the things that factory workers were allowed to do if they were efficient at the end of the day was to make something of their own choice. And some of the objects that they made were quite, um, became quite iconic. And so one of those things is a whip. And one of the reasons, it's sort of like a uh, parading baton and a lot of glassblowers unions would go on a march once a year, a picnic, and people would parade with these elaborate sort of staffs. And so this, there is a whip in the collection, which you, it's sort of like a walking stick and it's a very long skinny thing. So it's quite a tricky thing to make with runny glass to keep it straight and to make it nice. There's also a pipe, which is a sort of a joke thing. It's a very sort of bendy shape, very large. It's not functional. It's sort of a joke thing. And a, there's a bottle in the shape of a bellows and a large bell and a ball. So these objects are uh, iconic friggers is what they're called in England, and in America they were called whimsies. And so I've done a little bit of research on these, and it's likely that the term frigging around is connected to this idea that free play is the process of making friggers. So there is a sort of a shared root word there, which I find quite amusing, of course. So um, I was really delighted to find these, this collection of objects, which have never been shown before, and now they've been photographed. And so hopefully other people will find these interesting and that they might be connected with other scholarship on that topic. I think that given the way that the glass industry has changed so much and that it is now so, um, well, it's, it's not exactly an industrial process anymore, the handmade glass process, although still in my own training, I am, the reason that I can make unusual things is that I have been trained as a vessel maker. So I've spent thousands of hours making bottles and bowls and jugs and vases. And so now I have a fairly good understanding of how the material works. And so I can kind of coax it into doing things that are less natural to it. But vessel making is really the kind of foundation on which I'm building, although this brings us to the other aspect of the collection, which is that I'm also extremely interested in the representation 
of animals and plants and people and machines and other objects. And so one of the things that I'm keenly interested in is these strange vessels which are sort of peppered throughout the history of human culture, which combine a vessel and a representation of an animal or a plant. And in my own work, a combination of animal, plant and person is sort of my favourite thing. And so that theme talks a lot, or it harkens back to mythological metamorphosis. And so I'm very intrigued by the way that the observation of the natural world is translated into representation and how it's mediated by whatever material is being used. Because hot glass is not really a perfect material for making a perfect representation. It's not, you have to work it very quickly and the longer you work it, in some ways, the more detail you lose as opposed to some other materials where you can just keep carving away and you can walk away and come back. With hot glass, when you're assembling something, it's a, you can't really stop. I mean, you can ask somebody to turn this thing for you while you go and have a drink of water, but you can't come back next week to it. And so, you know, and th then the more times you reheat an object, the sort of more melty it will get. So anyway, the thing is, um, hot glass, when you're representing something with hot glass, it's quite clumsy generally, like it's very stylized, and you have to really know what you are trying to do before you start because you don't have very long to do it. And then, so I'm really sort of pleased with some of the designs that are made with hot glass because they are really odd distortions of representation. So if you can imagine a glass horse actually running around, it would be hilarious. And I'm into that sort of, well, I'm into funny stuff. So I'd much rather see a representation which is amusing and wrong than a perfect representation. And so, because I'm interested in laughing and I want to be surprised. And I mean, of course, you can be surprised that somebody has the skill to replicate something exactly, but I'm sort of bored by that. So I would rather see sort of lumpy and weirdly proportioned things that make you question reality than perfect representations. And so some of the things that I've chosen from the collection are these odd kind of, you know, they're odd, oddly formed. So one of the best of them is a pair of spotty dogs. And where are they from? So the Dalmatians are 
of spotted hounds with hares, late 19th century, and they're Staffordshire. And they've come as a gift of uh, Robert Lyons, a local collector. So their maker unknown, but we know that they are from the Staffordshire kilns. And they are, I love the way they are, um, what would you say, in kind of service of your incredible teeth totem. Tom's teeth totem, as the name suggests, is rather totemic and is topped by a crowning set of glass teeth. So t talk about the uh, Dalmatians or the spotted hounds, Tom. Well, they are unusual amongst the things that they have been shown with because they are probably the least uh, refined. So the, they've both, so it's a, they're mirroring each other. It's basically one, one ornament and then it's mirror image. So there are two of them. One of them's looking left and the other is looking right. And they're sort of sitting with a bunny, which I'm assuming they, it's suggested that they are a hunting dog that's caught this bunny. And the bunny is very lazily modelled. It's almost that's just sort of blending into the mound. And so there's something kind of um, very quick and sort of cheap about them, which is very charming because they are quite old and they are, um, I mean, you can tell that the people who made them knew what they were doing, but they're not refined in the same way that some of the other porcelain objects are that have very, very finely modelled flowers and much more intricate painting. Artist has um, actually decided not even to bother painting the back of the dogs, as you'll notice there. Yes, <laughs> on the front. and it looks as if the spots that have been painted with a, uh, a cane seat, the weaving of a cane seat. Is, it's almost like these big spots with smaller spots. It's a very unnatural spotting. Anyway, so these things are odd and um, because there's a pair of them they are a very useful framing device and so that's one of the things about this display of 77 objects is that I made a first selection of probably more than a hundred of the items and I'd only seen some of them as very small photographs and the rest of them were just descriptions. So I had to have a little look at them and they were all brought out of storage. And then I had a first look and decided on a, that I didn't need all of them, partly because the display case is not huge. And so I wanted it to look full, but the, you know, I didn't want it, I wanted you to be able to see everything. And so um, I did, couldn't include everything, but, the process of arranging the things was quite sort of painstaking in a way. I mean, it, it looks very haphazard, but actually I did think about it quite a lot. And so, yeah, there are kind of communications happening between a lot of these objects. Quite a few of them are kind of in conversation. So there's 
you know, well, one of my sort of highlights here is that there's a Margaret Dodd Echidna Holden, which I was able to include in this display. And so I was very keen to have one of my own organic vehicles in conversation with Margaret because her work was extremely influential on my own development because as a child, when I was about 10, my mother was given the book Nine Artist Potters, which has quite a few of Margaret Dodd's cars, and they're photographed in the world. And so one of them is photographed in front of a service station, and the lens has been selected so that the car looks almost life-size, even though it's only as big as a bread box. And so seeing her work, particularly there's, a, there's one in the collection of the NGV called Grassy Car, I think. Anyway, it is a grassy car. That one in particular sort of blew my mind. And so I think that a, a whole ongoing and significant branch of my work is directly influenced by Margaret Dodd. And so I really am pleased to have been able to make that connection very clear. I'd love to draw out some of the historic precursors. So we've talked about Margaret, whose uh, work is from the, this work's actually from the early 80s, the Echidna Holden. But some of the, the idea of the placement and the conversations, Tom, comes from your interest in the Wunderkammer or the Room of Wonders, the Renaissance idea of collecting. And uh, curiously, there are objects from the 6th century, I think that's the, the oldest object, the equestrian object up here, all the way through to now. This idea of placing objects and creating a taxonomy, or perhaps even earlier, oh no, we've got the 2nd century there, Tom, you're right. So this idea of Italian object from the second, potentially the second century, this idea of placing objects in conversation and seeing what erupts from the conversation, seemingly haphazard as you just said, but in fact sparking all sorts of conversations is really reminiscent of the idea of the Wunderkammer or the Cabinet of Curiosity. This is literally a Cabinet of Curiosity here in Adelaide at the moment. And the conversations that are happening, many of them revolve, as you said, around this idea of the of anthropomorphosis and also metamorphosis, but probably more importantly, lucis. Lucis is the Latin word for joke. And many of the objects that were found within the Wunderkammer or the Cabinet of Curiosity were jokes of art and jokes of nature. And those jokes were things that people found incredibly engaging and charming and impossible. So the puffer fish was a good example of a joke of nature, I imagine. And the puffer fish is something which has inspired your work. In fact, you've made quite a few vitreous puffer fish yourself. And uh, jokes of art were those things that artisans like yourself, but in this case in the 16th century and 17th century, were able to manipulate materials to do things that those materials were not deemed to be able to do. A sense of the impossible, a sense of the paradoxical. And that's certainly the case in something like the glass whip, which seems to be a contradiction in itself. But there's also this kind of art of analogy which is happening within this cabinet. There are all sorts of conversations that are being sparked where the animal 
fuses with the vegetable and also in some instances the mineral. Do you want to talk about, because you know my interest in the Wunderkammer is one that I've kind of tried to think about what it means to be in Australia or to be in the south, to be thinking about something so northern and it strikes me that there is something very Australian about the way you've selected these things, even though, Tom, most of these objects were not made in the south. Do you think, maybe this is just my theory, but do you, you know, looking at the Echidna Holden and then looking at your kangaroo, it seems to me that there's something, you're, as a kind of homing device, that you're bringing these things home, you're bringing these things back for us to appreciate and for us to rethink from a position of here. You're not trying to emulate, I guess, a northern practice. You've also included some netsuke, so some Japanese carved bone and timber objects as well. Can you have a chat with us about that? What it means to make these kind of statements from Adelaide? Sure. So there's, I'll just, before I get to that Antipodean question, I'll just talk a little bit about why I like the Wunderkammer and what my relationship there is. Because, well, one of the major themes of the 2016 biennial was the Wunderkammer. And at that time I was at the beginning stages of my PhD. And I know that your own scholarship is concerned with the historical precedence of the Wunderkammer and what it means for Australian collecting. And so early on in my own research, you were very kind in sharing some of your own sources. And so we spoke about some of the collections in Europe and then I was very lucky to go to Europe with my family during my studies. So in 2017, I went to Florence and to Dresden and a few other really important... Uh, Vienna has some extremely good still existing collections which are largely based on Renaissance princely sort of collecting cabinets. And one of the reasons that I like them so much is that they are concerned with anomaly. They're concerned with things which are uncategorizable, at least at that time. So one of the classic examples there is coral, which was deemed to be in between a plant and a mineral. And so it was sort of seen to be miraculous. And also it was assumed because of that to have a kind of mystical powers and so coral was highly prized and it was also very lucky to have it around and so very lavish things were made with coral inclusions along with you know diamonds and gold and very precious gemstones and one of the most sort of satisfying sculptures that was made in this way is a depiction of Daphne, which I've always, even though it's a sort of a terrible story about Daphne trying to escape Apollo, the idea of her becoming a tree, I think, is actually very beautiful. 
even though I imagine sprouting leaves and branches is quite a painful thing, I sort of feel like trees are kind of noble and so in some ways I think it's very powerful, profound and wonderful thing to be able to become a tree. And so I, um, anyway, so this is depicted by a, a German silversmith and it's a weird sculpture because it's a, quite a realistic silver woman and then these coral branches are kind of really clumsily attached. Like the transition is odd between the arm and the coral. There are much better depictions in marble of Daphne becoming a tree. Anyway, it's a theme which I'm in very intrigued by. And I made a kind of, you know, a reinterpretation of uh, coral Daphne, which is even more clumsy. But, you know, I kind of designed it that way. And as I said before, hot glass is not inclined to be worked as a truly accurate representation and I think some of the weird stylization is charming and so it is sort of an intriguingly anomalous object which is you know talking about anomaly so that's just one of the objects and sort of one of the reasons that I like the Wunderkammer. There's a, there's a very famous, or there, it's been, the collection is being disbanded, but there's a very strong connection with this kind of collecting and the Medici family in Florence. And that's interesting to me because they also had um, a glass uh, studio and they encouraged, they had designers making amusing glass objects. And so this comes back to the whip and the bellows and the bell. Because a lot of these objects were representing all kinds of different things, pickles and many, many different animals and boats and architecture and all kinds of things as drinking vessels. and. One of the main reasons for making them was to use them and they were often intentionally difficult to use. And so you would give it to your guest in the hope and expectation that they would then spill wine on themselves. And this was great, the cause of great hilarity. Um, so there's that funny connection with trick glasses, which I'm sort of vaguely getting at here. Coming back to your question, I haven't actually got an answer for you about how the Wunderkammer works within Australia, except, oh, oh yes, we do. So there is a funny, well, I mean, early European travellers to Australia were extremely bemused by the by the Australian animals that they encountered because they hadn't seen anything quite like them. And there, there was an understanding that, 
or there was a sort of hypothesis that the other side of the world was somehow a very inverted state of being. And one very clear example there was the black swan, which had never been seen before. And, you know, they would have assumed, I guess, that all swans were white before they came and found a black swan. And then so everything is sort of thrown into question, all the assumptions. And so when they saw a kangaroo, especially when they started to draw a kangaroo, the early depictions look like greyhounds, so quite a lot like greyhounds. I think that what that does Viewing the very earliest depictions of Australian animals caused me to think about how preconceptions influence how we see and represent things. I think that what you're used to influences how you see the world in a weird sort of way. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. So one of the odd things that I imagined for myself was that I had come from a planet entirely made of glass and that I was encountering the world, the, the actual physical world, from a perspective of somebody who could only think about forms as if they'd been made of glass. And so trying to think about what a kangaroo, how to represent a kangaroo, if, if all you could, your, your visual vocabulary was entirely made of the formal history of glass, is an interesting sort of thought experiment. I, l I love the idea of your own world of glass and that makes me think about the frog because the, this kind of amphibious obsession that is on the bottom shelf is a distinctive um, moment, I think. There are, so you've got this idea, for those people listening who can't see the display, you've got this idea of a panoply of objects from everywhere. And then all of a sudden you've got this moment of focus that happens on the very bottom shelf with a selection of frogs. And Tom, you've made one of them in response. Curiously, many of those frogs, in fact, I think all four of those frogs were made here in South Australia over the last 80 to 100 years or so. And they are all kind of charming, some of them less, um, perhaps less precise, less ornate than others. Tell us a little bit about this kind of modest frog and how it occupies, how it dwells within this cabinet and how it connects back to some of the, the thinking, particularly around a convergence of the animal world and, and materials. In this instance, the other frogs, the four frogs are all clay or all ceramic or made from clay, fired clay, whilst yours is of course glass. Why did you decide to make a response, an amphibious retort? Well, I fear that you, you think that I am more calculating than I actually am. I don't quite know why, but Rebecca Evans seemed very keen to show me these this collection of frogs, and I think the reason is that they haven't been shown before. There were a few more that I didn't like as much. I thought these ones were the best. And 
So I do think that they're very quirky and it's one of the sort of clearer examples of the the differences in representation because they're all the same animal and they're really different. And so that's satisfying to me. And the frog that I, the glass frog that I made, I didn't make it in response to these. It's very old, but, um, and so I was still riffing, already riffing on this idea of transformation and metamorphosis from 20 years ago. And so the frog, this was made for an exhibition and I made a life cycle of the frog from a tadpole, actually from frog spawn, which I think is really intriguing visually, the black dot within a clear uh, sort of vessel and then a clump of those eggs and very you know sort of it's a I guess the frog feels like a very apt animal to make the life cycle in glass because frog spawn is transparent and then tadpoles are really glassy their tails are transparent and then frogs this one has boots and gloves it has sort of uh cuban heel cowboy boots or something i don't know so and it's got these sort of fishnet stockings it's definitely quite kinky and it's it's got silver leaf it's quite metallic and it's got a creepy smile it's quite an odd object and so um and then the next part of the life cycle was that it was becoming a kind of motorbike so it was holding a wheel and it had it was a trike trike. I don't know if it was motorised, but it had, it had three wheels. And so it was a sort of response to the climate crisis as well, because frogs are seen as a kind of canary in the coal mine, and frog population is, is one of the indicators. You know, the health of the frog population is one of the indicators of the health of the whole ecosystem because they're very sensitive to small changes and they die off if things are if things change and so yeah so I thought the idea of frogs evolving because they're already their life cycle is already so metamorphic surely it's not that much more difficult for them to grow wheels and out compete the sort of rampant industrialization of the world is the is the sort of you know sad jokes that I was trying to tell anyway this one frog I just had it in the cellar and so when I saw Rebecca's suggestion to put the frogs in I thought well this is how I can resolve putting the frogs in you know you mentioned Rebecca Evans who's our curator of decorative arts and in a sense, you've, you're co-curating here. Rebecca worked with you to select a whole lot of objects and then you made the kind of final selection. You're, in fact, the curator. And, of course, the word curator has a fabulous etymology because it means to care for something but also to evoke curiosity, and you've done both of those things in this selection. 
as part of the in the process, you draw our attention to the way that curating is a really selective game. It's a game in which you decide to place value on some things and not others, where you decide to make conversations between objects. And we've just talked about the idea that, in fact, there's an error potentially made with your own frog. He's, he's older than he looks, perhaps. But there's something else in this cabinet that I'm sure many of our listeners have seen, and that is an errant or leftover tag. So there's an acquisition label here. There's a little tag, a little swing tag that's hanging from a very ornate uh, porcelain object. I, I'm th I think it's porcelain. I haven't checked the label, but I imagine it is. So a porcelain basket, in fact, is still carrying its label. Tell us about that, Tom Moore. Yes, so um, the object is unbelievably fragile. It's it's porcelain made into a wicker basket. And so it's probably more air than ceramic. And so, and the shadow it casts is incredible. And there are incredibly delicate petals on these little flowers. There's a, there's a carnation. There's all, I mean, it's very, very um, finely wrought, but in some ways, it's sort of foul. It's got this kind of metallic-y luster. It's just amazing. In the, in the Renaissance, they had this idea of kind of vaunting wasted work, that the ultimate would be to have such excessive skill that it was kind of showing off. And I think it's an object which is typical of that, although it doesn't have colour. So it's restrained in the sense that it's a single, it's a monochrome, it's a kind of ivory colour but one colour only. Mm, it's really gorgeous and also kind of foul. <laughs> and um, so, well, I, I mean, it, it was the only object that had a tag when I saw it. Mm. And so when I, you know, as we were taking its protective padding off, the registrar went to take the tag off and I said, oh, can we please leave it? And so she said, oh, um, well, I guess, okay, you're the boss sort of thing. <laughs> and then um, and then I think Rebecca also wanted to take the tag off and I said, can we please leave it? And she said, yeah, that's all right. And then the other installer went to take the tag off and I said, no, no, we're going to leave that. And he said, oh, ooh. <laughs> he said, this, that's going to cause a ruckus. Anyway, so. Um, I love the way it disturbs the kind of perfection of the museum, that visitors will come. And this basket is on quite a low shelf, so children will see this basket very easily. It's only about a metre up from the ground. And they will see that basket and see the tag. And I love the idea that you are troubling. It's a very gentle uh, intervention, but you are troubling the museum and you're asking people to think about how we classify things, how we value them and also how we display them. It's a lot of fun for us because we get to learn a lot more about ourselves, I think, in the process of working with artists, but also to have an artist like Tom come in and to curate from, in, a, in essence, the world of objects across a couple of thousand years of human history within a modestly scaled cabinet that sits between two floors of the museum. 
It's a really delicious moment, Tom Moore, and I'd love to congratulate you on it and also Rebecca Evans in working so closely with you. It's been fun to present it as part of Sala. Tell us what's coming up for you later on this year. I have a very large show coming up at the Jam Factory. I think it will open in the round about the 8th of October. And it was scheduled to open for Sala, but many things have had to be delayed because of the COVID-19. So we, one of the major elements of the exhibition is a really nice book. And so it's gonna be the launch of that book. And um, there's no way that that could have been done in time for Sala, given all the delays that have happened. And the Jam Factory have really been generous in the way that they are. We're just opening the gallery, that's all. <laughs> Maybe tell the listeners what, what the noise is, because it's kind of interesting. We've been having this conversation before the gallery opened, and so now it's 10 o'clock, and people are welcome to come <laughs> and have a look now. And I hope you do come and have a look at this display. And the other Sala programming is fantastic. Coming back to the show that's coming up at the Jam Factory in, in October, the, uh, we're planning to make quite an immersive and interesting display. The Jam is building a lot of odd sort of furniture for me and it should be something to see. And a lot of the work is the result of that PhD research. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I think it's, oh, and one of the really nice things about the show is that it will tour for a few years to many regional galleries around Australia, so, please come and see it. Thank you so much, Tom. That's been wonderful to talk this morning. I'm, I'm gonna give our listeners a little bit of homework and a bit of a challenge. I think we can all curate our own worlds with curiosity and care. So your homework after this lunchtime talk is to go into your own collections and to arrange them in a new way, a way that enables you to see them differently and perhaps value them differently. Uh, Thank you so much once again to Tom for taking the time to select from the collection and to present it here so marvellously at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us next week for our next lunchtime talk. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.